Hey, I'm Tinbidermis, and it's NPR's Book of the Day. Love it or hate it, capitalism is pretty central to how our world functions. And today, we've got a pair of books that take a closer look at what that's meant for Americans. In a few minutes, we'll hear about a new book called Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism and the World, by Malcolm Harris. It's a look at the history of Silicon Valley and the particular brand of capitalism that's developed there and how that's shaped the world. But first, Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders has long had a problem with how capitalism has shaped U.S. politics. And he takes on that topic in his new book called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And while his politics may be no secret, he uses the book as a way to shed light on why he thinks the government is failing Americans, what needs to change, and yes, he even manages to spill a little DCT. He spoke about the book and embracing his anger with NPR's Stephen Skeep. Senator Bernie Sanders is embracing his anger. He's shown a lot of it during more than 30 years in Congress. In the 1990s, he attacked both parties for their defense spending. I know you're upset about it. I know you're hoping and praying that maybe we'll have another war. Maybe somebody will rise up. But it ain't happening. In 2015, he began seeking the Democratic nomination for president. And Sanders told me then that people should not be afraid because he calls himself a Democratic Socialist. I don't want to get people nervous falling off their chairs, but Social Security is a socialist program. When Donald Trump won the presidency, Sanders noted that even Trump promised to preserve that program. Yes, you're damn right we're going to hold him accountable and remind him of what he said. He could also challenge people on the political left when they insisted that Democrats say black lives matter. Because it's too easy for quote-unquote liberals to be saying, well, let's use this phrase. Well, what are we going to do about 51% of young African-Americans unemployed? Now Bernie Sanders has written a book about his recent campaigns and legislation. He titled it, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. When we spoke, he traced that anger to his childhood in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. There was a lot of stress uh, in the house over money. Often there would be arguments, my mother would like to do this or that, and we just didn't have enough money to do that. You know, it's not that we were living in desperate poverty, we were not. My father worked every day of his life and made a living. But economically, we were not going anywhere. My mother had a dream. Uh, it doesn't sound terribly radical now. She wanted to own her own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, she died young, and she never. we never achieved that dream. We lived in a, a rent-controlled apartment for my whole youth. Is that where your anger comes from? You put anger right in the title of your book. It's what it is understanding that we live in the richest country in the history of the world. And you got over 60% of the people living paycheck to paycheck. The socialist senator from Vermont aligns with Democrats. He was an important voice in the first two years of President Biden's administration, though he gives the Democratic Congress of those years a mixed record. He was proud of the American Rescue Plan responding to the pandemic. But I was bitterly disappointed in Build Back Better. What many of us said is okay. And the president said, we dealt with the emergency. Let's deal with the structural crises facing America. Our child care system is a disaster. Our health care system is dysfunctional. Kids can't afford to go to college. Let's deal with the existential threat of climate change. Let's deal with income and wealth inequality. We came within two votes of legislation which would have been transformative for the working families. Senators in this Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. That's correct. 
Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Sinema of Arizona enraged Democrats by blocking sweeping social legislation. Though Manchin later negotiated a smaller version, Sanders still labels both corporate Democrats. These are the folks who got a whole lot of money from wealthy people and large corporations, and they do their bidding. I was going to ask if you're still angry at someone like Joe Manchin. It sounds like you are. From his perspective, he's representing a very conservative state that votes for Republicans for president hugely and needs to bring them something that they can believe in. Do you sympathize with his political situation? No. In 2016, when I was running for president, I won a landslide victory in West Virginia. In the Democratic primary? In a Democratic primary. But there's but, a general election. I understand. But the issue is, and again, I don't want to get into West Virginia politics. In my view, politicians do well, and West Virginia is one of the poorest states in America. In my view, politicians do well when they stand up and fight for working people. You write about the working class. I made a note here, page 286. You can't win elections without the overwhelming support of the working class. It seems that many Republicans now agree with you and openly court the working class and get a lot of working class votes. Why do you think that is? Well, that is an enormously important political issue. That is the most important political question of our time. But what I think has happened over the years, and this is no great secret, is a result of a lot of corporate contributions. The Democratic Party has kind of turned its back on the needs of working class people. And then you have a a gap there where you have people like Trump coming along and saying, you know what the problem is? It's immigrants. It's gays. It's transgender people. And they get people angry around those issues rather than Democrats saying, I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem is the wealthy are getting richer. Corporations have enormous power. We're going to take them on and create a nation that works for you, not the 1%. Your Republican colleague, Marco Rubio of Florida, talks a lot about the working class, alleges that Democrats have turned against the working class. And if I were going to summarize his critique, I might say um, that Democrats, in his view, are overwhelmingly concerned with the worries of college-educated, affluent liberals and have forgotten about ordinary people. Is he right? What the polls tell us, and and what exit polls tell us, which is very sad to me, is white working class people voting Republicans. And you're seeing Latinos more and more voting Republicans. You're seeing more black men voting Republican. And that bothers me. As somebody who is of the worker, son of the working class, that bothers me that that is happening. Let's talk about what you think you can get done in this Congress, this particular Congress. People will know you're the chairman of a powerful committee that oversees health care and other issues. You can try to move legislation through there, but you have the Senate that you have and a Republican House, a closely divided but Republican House. What do you think is something that you could make law in the next two years? I'll tell you, we had a hearing just uh, the other day. There are obviously what I want to see, a Medicare for all system, ain't going to happen. No Republicans support it. Half the Democrats won't support it. But this is what we can do. We can expand primary health care and community health centers to every region of the country. I've worked very hard on this issue with some success. We now have 30 million people accessing community health centers in my state of Vermont, leading the country, one-third of our people. What does that mean? Federal subsidies. Well, these are federal programs. You walk into a community health center... You get affordable health care, dental care. Dental care is a big issue. Mental health counseling and low-cost prescription drugs. Republicans understand that in red states, it is very hard often for people to access a doctor. 
Sanders believes that some rural Republicans will support expanding those health centers. And this may be the most interesting side of Bernie Sanders. Though he stands out because of his socialism, his politics depend in part on his pragmatism. Even though you say it's okay to be angry about capitalism, there's a place for capitalism in the world as you envision. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. If you made all the rules, there would still be large corporations. Well, I don't know about that. But look, there's nothing in that book to suggest that it is bad for go out, people to go out and start a business to come up with innovation. That's great. That's good. What is bad is when a handful of corporations control sector after sector. I feel like there are a lot of Republicans who are trying to pick up on that theme. They've got their own approach to it. They talk about the social power of corporations as much as the financial power of corporations. But do you see some common ground there? Well, I think what they sense correctly is a dissatisfaction on the part of the working class of this country. Senator Bernie Sanders is the author of It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Senator, thanks for coming by. Well, thank you for having me. Now to a book that takes a look at how one region grew to have an outsized influence on how the world operates. In his book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, Malcolm Harris charts the course of how Silicon Valley came to be, both literally and as an incubator for bright minds and ambitious entrepreneurs. But, as he explains to NPR's Michelle Martin, it's also a microcosm, and perhaps the cause of, so many of the world's problems. There's one narrative about the rise of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California, that it's a place where the entrepreneurial spirit roams free, nurtured by fine schools and open minds, whose progeny go on to create things that make the world better for everyone. And then there's Malcolm Harris's version. In his buzzy, sprawling new book, it is a microcosm of and a metaphor for a capitalist system that advantages the few at the expense of the many, that extracts as much as it can, as fast as it can, leaving exhausted soil, bodies, and souls in its wake. His book is called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. And when I spoke with Harris, he told me that the idea for the book came from his thoughts about his childhood in Palo Alto. So I'm born in 1988. The Soviet Union project ends in 1991. And so my existence is almost coextensive with this unipolar capitalism. I've really grown up near it and in it. And in Palo Alto, I moved there at age eight, uh, which was in the mid-90s. I really got to see this sort of dot-com rise, the rise of the internet. And I think we're all living in that world and the consequences in that world more and more every day. So one of the things that's so interesting about the book, you spend time on the so-called great men, people like Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University. These are the famous people who so often dominate historical narratives. But you weave their stories into a view of the larger forces that you call the great man under global capitalism. So what is the role of the great man under global capitalism, like somebody like Leland Stanford? And of course, at, at some point, I need you to tell us who he was and why does he matter so much? There's a lot of debate about where and when capitalism starts and how, but there's not a lot of debate about where and how it becomes a world system. And that's at the second half of the 19th century with the incorporation of California, Australia, China, and Japan, and this link that closes this chain around the world to establish for the first time a true global system of production. And Leland Stanford is that guy. He's the front man for the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad he really is our first Silicon Valley tech baron. 
But this was a time of really great class conflict. And so in the 1870s, when the workers are mad at him, showing up outside his house, threatening to drag him from his mansion on Knob Hill, which is a hill in San Francisco, where all the richest guys lived at the time, he takes his family and he moves to the suburbs. Except the suburbs don't exist yet, so he has to create the suburb in order to move his family away from this class conflict. And that's how Palo Alto was born. I mean, you do pin a lot of focus on the cruelty that underlies some of these central figures and the companies that they made. You know, look, I'm certainly not going to defend the cruelty that underlies many great fortunes throughout history. Many of the great inventions of our time, I mean, you think about like some of the great libraries, some of the great collections, some of the great art. Most people weren't getting the benefit of that. Is, is this era really so different? Well, I think it is different because we're talking about a very limited amount of time, right, between the end of the 19th century and now. Even in terms of American history, this is a relatively short period of time. In that period of time, those technologies and forces that we've invoked since then, you know, that Palo Alto represents to the world, have been incredibly destructive. So when we're talking about nuclear missiles for the first time, right, we're talking about the power to destroy the Earth. And that was a power wielded consciously out of Palo Alto on purpose with this idea that equality was at stake, right? That Palo Alto's place as an unequal perch on top of the world was at stake and that these people had to come up with some way, some tool to secure that position for the 20th century. And now that we're in the 21st century, we can look back and say, they succeeded. They did that. So that's not just moving money around, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's serious. That's war, right? That's a lot of bombs you have to produce, a lot of chips to go in those bombs that you have to produce. The book has gotten, I think, a lot of buzz. On the other hand, the criticism that I've seen so far is that you talk about capitalism's many ills, but you are indifferent to the alternatives. Like how many people have been slaughtered by communist regimes throughout history, right? And I mean... I don't know if that's a fair criticism in the sense that most historians don't necessarily write a history book and then end it with a manifesto about what should happen next. I mean, they're reviewing what has already happened. But I don't know. What do you make of that argument? Yes, I'm a Marxist. I understand history as the history of class conflict. But that doesn't mean that my project is the weighing of hearts, right? I'm not saying this guy's a capitalist, so he's bad. This guy's a communist, so he's good. That's not the project of the book. It's to try to understand this history. And the best way I can understand that history is as a history of class conflict. And that's the argument I put forward. Now, when someone writes a history of the Soviet Union and they critique Stalin, do they then have to list, you know, how many people died in the Vietnam War hmm. that were killed by American bombs? Of course not. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a pretty well-worn practice called red baiting. And it's like bear baiting, right? Is that you throw out these poorly made arguments with the idea that someone like me is going to have to spend all of their time responding to, well, what about Venezuela? Well, <laughs> what about the Soviet Union? And doesn't actually get to put my argument out there in terms of the interpretation of the history. And that's a way to marginalize these sort of critical voices about capitalism. It's fascinating. Do you have a hope for how people will use this book. I mean, I do take your point that it arrives at a moment where there's so much going on in the tech industry right now, just these kind of waves of layoffs, and people are looking about whether the costs and the benefits equate. I'm just, I'm curious about how you hope people will use this work. 
for me, the, the purpose of the book isn't to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes because we figure that out about Silicon Valley every 20 years, every 15 years, whatever. The, the same cycle repeats and we say, hey, look, these guys aren't geniuses after all. And so what I'm trying to get at in terms of how we can put this to use and put an understanding about this history to use is that if you point out that the emperor is naked, it doesn't necessarily make him not the emperor anymore. If people have a deeper memory for these cycles, hopefully they can look underneath the sort of bubble phenomenon to the mechanism that's causing those bubbles in the first place. That's Malcolm Harris. His new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World, is out now. Malcolm Harris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Timbidermias. This podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Katie Klein, Rina Idvani, Megan Lim, Patrick Jaren-Watananen, Shannon Rhodes, Danny Hensel, Emiko Tamogawa, Todd Munt, Milton Guevara, Olivia Hampton, Anna Perez, and myself. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.